You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Good afternoon. Um, this is a, a somber text for a, a somber weekend. Um, I think it, it says a lot about the evil of sin, um, but it also is a very hopeful text that says a lot about God's grace and the hope we have in forgiveness and, and restoration. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to get to unpack it with y'all this afternoon. Uh, if you haven't already, I would recommend opening up to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Um, if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 264 of the Old Testament. And so uh, this week, or last week, we, we started the story of David and Bathsheba, and this week we're, we're finishing it up. And last week we explored how Second Samuel 11 parallels the story of the fall in Genesis 3, um, meaning just as Adam and Eve saw the fruit, they desired the fruit, they took the fruit, and then they tried to cover the consequences of their sin. So also, David saw Bathsheba, desired Bathsheba, took Bathsheba, and then tried to cover the consequences of his sin. And so our text this afternoon is going to add one more parallel, which is that God graciously confronts. Meaning that God would have been perfectly just as just strike down David right there. And I don't think any of us would have really had a big problem with that. In fact, I think a lot of us would have found that more satisfying. Um, But instead what God does is he seeks out David. And whereas Adam and Eve tried to uh, make excuses or deny their sin or shift the blame to other people, David does something different. David very forthrightly acknowledges his sin. Uh, In a word, David repents. And so I think that's going to be the main point of what we unpack this afternoon. That this text, or these two texts that we're going to study are giving us an example of repentance. And what we're going to see is that repentance is V-shaped, meaning it goes from the fruit of sin down to the root of sin, and then from the root of repentance up to the fruit of repentance. And so that'll be our, our outline for this afternoon, from fruit to root, and then from root to fruit. Um, so point number one, the, the fruit of sin. Just to set the stage here a little bit, um, the text opens with, you know, God sends Nathan to confront David, and Nathan tells a parable about a rich man who abuses and exploits his power for really no good reason um, to steal from a poor man. And David sort of rightly gets indignant about this, and he gets angry, and he pronounces a very harsh judgment on the rich man in verse 5. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. It's a very severe punishment. And then almost immediately, Nathan flips the script on David. He says, you're the man! And David's like, oh. Um, and then in the next seven verses, to really hammer home the point, he just, he just unloads on, on David and rebukes him very severely. Um, and then in verse 13, David accepts Nathan's rebuke. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Uh, and, and so essentially David is co-signing or agreeing to everything that Nathan has said in his rebuke. And so I think a good place for us to start is to look at Nathan's rebuke. Where, what, is Nate, what is David agreeing to? And I think Nathan rebukes three things. The first thing Nathan rebukes is David's idolatry. 
Look at the second half of verse 7. It says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. So Nathan's recounting the blessings of God, and then he's recounting the promises of God. I gave you this much, I would give you so much more. And essentially, he's accusing David of not being satisfied and not being uh, trusting in God's goodness and God's provision. That David's sin is saying to God that, you know, you're not really good, and you're, you're not really trustworthy, and you're not really satisfying. And saying that because, you know, you gave me all these things, yes, like you gave me the kingdom, but you haven't given me this one thing, God. You know, and so David's loving something other than God more than God, and that's almost the definition of idolatry. Um, the second thing that Nathan rebukes is David's rebellion. Look at verse 9. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? And I think by word of the Lord, he probably means the law and specifically the Ten Commandments because he keeps sort of alluding to them throughout the text. Uh, so why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So Nathan's saying, like, well, you, you coveted your neighbor's wife, you took your neighbor's wife, you, 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 you murdered her husband, so you've got idolatry, you've got covetousness, you've got adultery, you've got abuse of power, potentially even rape, and then you have murder. So David's really not doing super well on the Ten Commandments at the moment. Um, David's sin, it seems to be saying to God, like, hey, you're not, you're not worthy of respect. You're not worthy of obedience. I don't really need to fear you. I can sort of do whatever I want, and things are going to work out okay for me because I control the army, I control the courts, I'm the king of Israel, all my generals are great. Um, and, and, and so essentially what David is doing here is he's trying to dethrone God. That God, you know, I was listening to something last night, that, that God has made our entire galaxy, and there's 100 billion stars in our galaxy, and God has made 100 billion galaxies. You know, the Bible's always talking about the majesty of the heavens, and God created everything about David, that God has known David since before David was even David. And here's this puny, insignificant little Near Eastern warlord who's saying, like, I know better than you. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's, 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 it's sort of the definition of rebellion, of taking the, the rightful king and trying to push him off his throne because you think you know better and you think you can run the world better than he can. And then the third thing that Nathan rebukes is David's attempt to cover his sin. Uh, look at verse 10. It says, Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he will lie with your wives in, in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. So, so, so David tried to cover up his sin. He tried to cover it up first through deception, and then ultimately he, he tried to cover it up through murder. And what David's doing is he's trying to escape punishment. He's trying to keep people from knowing. And in a certain sense, he seems to have exceeded, because really the only people that should know about his sin are Bathsheba and Joab. 
Um, but then Nathan sort of comes out of nowhere, and David begins to realize that, oh, actually, God knows about my sin as well, that I can, I can hide from all these other people, and I can cover the consequences of my sin with my power, but I can't hide from God. And God's no respecter of persons. And so he doesn't care that David's the king. God's going to call David to account. And so God promises to punish David, and moreover, he promises to punish him very publicly. Uh, he promises to expose his sin. Uh, and he, he does it so well, he says, I'm going to expose it for all of Israel to see, and in fact, he's going to see to it that it's chronicled in the Bible. So you know, 3,000 years later, we're still reading about David's sin. So essentially, when David is accepting Nathan's rebuke, he's accepting these three things. He's saying, you know, yes, I committed idolatry. Yes, I'm a rebel rebel against God. And yes, I deserve to be punished. And so repentance starts with the fruit of sin or the what of sin. Like acknowledging sin is sin. Um, You know, for me, when I I had first become a Christian, I had been a a Christian for quite, you know, a a few years even. And I still was kind of clinging on to this idea that sort of saw sin as a a self-destructive error. You know, at least when it didn't hurt other people. Uh, that it was sort of a self-destructive error. It was bad for me. Yes, I probably shouldn't do it. Sort of like excessive drinking. But it really didn't, you know, it wasn't really like evil or wicked. And um, I think my unofficial thinking, although I probably would not have said this, is that, you know, uh, God loves us and he doesn't really care about sin that much so long as no one else gets hurt. And uh, then, you know, fast forward a little bit and we, we're doing a sermon series on the minor prophets here at um, at Providence. And, you know, if you're not familiar with the structure of the minor prophets, essentially they're all the same structure, which is a, God sends a prophet. The prophet details the list of the sins of the people and says, hey, your sins are evil. And if you don't turn back, I'm going to judge you. And I'm going to, you know, unleash judgment upon you. And then sometimes they repent, but most of the time they don't. And, and I really didn't like these books at first because they're really, they seem very harsh. Um, but g- gradually you began to break down this conception that I had and make me realize that, uh, yes, God really loves us, but also, yes, God really hates sin, because sin is wicked, and sin is an affront to God, that, God is the, that sin is the de-godding of God, um, that sin is, is not just a self-destructive error, that, it just, that it's wicked and it deserves to be punished. And so, repentance starts with acknowledging that, acknowledging the, the what of sin, or the fruit of sin, that we don't justify it, we don't rationalize it, we don't minimize it, we don't try to cover it up. We say, I have sinned, sin is evil, sin is an affront to God, and that sin deserves to be punished. But obviously repentance doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with the fruit or the what. Uh, it, 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 it moves down to the root or the why of sin. And so to get there, um, I want to zoom in on David's heart a little bit. And uh, we're going to look at Psalm 51, which... Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 483. And Psalm 51, give you a second turn there. Um, Psalm 51 is sort of a record of David's prayers relating to this incident. You can kind of see that in the, uh, in the little title thing. Um, and it's has, it has, got a lot to say about the roots of sin, and uh, we're not going to say it all today. We're going we're gonna to focus in on one thing about the roots of sin, which is that the roots of sin run deep. Um, a few observations just to start us off with it from, the, from Psalm 51 about the nature of sin. Uh, the, the first thing I noticed is that sin is not easily removed. Look at verse 3. David says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So, so 
two things that jumped out to me is that, that this is not something that David can do. God has to cleanse him of his sin. And it's not like a, an easy thing. It needs to be a thorough cleansing. The second thing that jumped out with me is, in, is that sin is not a learned behavior. Look at verse 5. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Meaning, it's not David's upbringing, or it's not David's circumstances that gave rise to his sin. It's not as if David came into the world innocent and then was slowly corrupted by the people around him. Uh, No, it seems to be that David came into the world corrupted and that sin was with him from the very beginning. Uh, the, The third thing that I think we see about sin here is that sin is not the result of ignorance. So look at verse 6. David says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Meaning that David, you know, as a spirit-led believer at least, has the spirit of God, he has the conscience, he knows what's right, he knows what's wrong, uh, and, and, and yet he has chosen to do wrong. That's kind of a frightening prospect, isn't it? And then the, the fourth one is that sin can't be atoned for. Verse 16. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Uh, in other words, David seems to be saying that religious formula can't make it okay. It's not as if I can go out and commit a sin, do a bad thing, and then do a certain formula to make it okay. That it's not within his power to fix his sin, or else he would do it. Um, and so when we combine these four things together, I think we, we, we get this larger idea, which is that sin is not easy to fix because sin is not a surface issue. In fact, the, what the Bible says is that sin is a heart issue. Um, and, and to illustrate this, I'm going to take a, a very intentionally trivial example from my own life because I think it's easier to see that when we have like a really kind of magnified horrific sin, but when we have like a nice little respectable sin, it's harder to see that. And so what I'm going to talk about is probably the worst invention in the past 15 years, which is Facebook. Okay? And so here's the pattern of my Facebook behavior. I'm very bad on Facebook. And I'll, I'll be scrolling through Facebook and I'll see something inflammatory and you know, the, the question that's presented to me is, do I take the bait or do I just move on and keep scrolling through? Really, I shouldn't be on Facebook at all, but whatever. Um, and then nine times out of 10, I'll just move on. You know, I'm, I'm mature enough to do that. But one time out of 10, well, I'll just think of the meanest, cleverest, snarkiest put down I can, and I'll just throw it out there. Um, and then usually what happens is I'll almost immediately feel regret. I'm like, I should probably shouldn't have said that. That was not a very Christian thing to say. And then I'll go back and delete it. Right? So no harm, no foul. That seems like a very innocuous sin. There's no more to that story than that. Um, but what does this reveal about my heart? It actually reveals some, some very uh, frightening things about my heart. The first thing is that I love, apparently I love to humiliate other people to make myself feel better or to feel smart. The second thing is that I am a proud and arrogant man. I have the arrogance that says there's not enough opinions on the internet. I need to add my opinion to this. The third thing is it reveals a sort of judgmental meddlesomeness that says, these people are not behaving the way they ought to, and so it's my job to come in and control them and to get them to do what they're supposed to do. Um, I'm the internet police. And so the, and the fourth thing is it's a, it's, it's a very serious rebellion against my role as an ambassador of God, that God has appointed us all ambassadors of his grace. And here I am insulting people on the internet. And so this action seems very innocuous, but deep down there's a real wickedness there. And 
Listen to what, what, what God's testimony is about my heart. God says that every inclination of my heart is evil from my youth. Uh, Genesis 8.21. God says, my heart is sick and deceitful above all things. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Jesus says, from my heart comes all manner of wicked thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, debauchery, evil, slander, arrogance, and foolishness. Mark 7, verses 21 and 22. And so one way to think about this is sort of loosely borrowed from James chapter 3, which is that you know, inside of my heart, and I think inside of all of our hearts, is a, a spring or a river of salty, polluted, sort of brackish water. And most of the time, honestly, it's, it's dammed up by natural constraints. And so maybe it's fear of failure, maybe it's social pressure, maybe it's legal consequences, maybe it's the pride of respectability. But then sometimes those, when those constraints get removed, it begins to seep out and flow out. And so like, you know, when I'm on the internet, especially when I'm on the internet and I'm anonymous and no one knows who I am, or, you know, when it's late at night and everyone else is asleep, or, this is something I've noticed in my own life, when I'm in a position of power and no one can tell me, hey, you shouldn't do that. And there's no one to stop me, just like David. And then, you know, the stuff starts to come out, and I'm shocked. I'm like, where did this come from? Where's all this wickedness coming out of? Uh, but it's, it's been there all along. It's, it's been with me from birth, and in fact, it's been with us, all of us collectively, since the fall. Uh, so sin is a part of who we are, and sin is not something that we can just fix on our own. That sin comes from an innate corruption in our hearts, and, and we're powerless to fix it. And there's your text for the afternoon. No, because uh, it should, in some sense, it should leave us hopeless. This is, a, this is a very hopeless anthropology. But it doesn't, because we can't fix ourselves, but God can. And so that'll take us to the third point, which is the root of repentance. And the, and the root of repentance is, is turning back to God and asking for his grace. Um, in Psalm 51, we see this process unfold in three steps, although I don't mean to be super formulaic about it, but this is one way it might look. Um, the first thing we do is we ask God for forgiveness, or what, what I would call his cleansing grace. Look at verse 1. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then, and then jump down to verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So the first thing David does is he asks God to remove the guilt of his sin. And there's a, you know, very inescapable logic here. Sin is rebellion against God and incurs guilt, and so we need to ask God for amnesty or forgiveness. Um, the second thing we see here is, is David asks God for renewing or restoring grace. So cleansing grace, restoring grace. Look at verse 10. David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
So David asked God to fix the cause of his sin, uh, namely his heart, to renew his heart, to give him a spirit of willingness. And again, we can see the inescapable logic here. If the, if the root cause of my sin is my polluted heart, then I need a new heart. I need God to give me a new heart and restore it. And then, after asking God for his cleansing grace and his restoring grace, we see David just trusts God. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. And what I find so remarkable about that verse is that he says, you will not despise it. Right? That David knows that God will help him. David knows that though his sin is grievous, that, that God is, it will forgive it. Um, that we can trust that God will be faithful with his grace. Um, and I, I hear in this verse the echoes of the new covenant. That, that Christ died to secure forgiveness, to secure a new heart, to secure a new spirit, and to secure a restored relationship with God for all of us. That whomsoever believes in him will have all of these things. And so if the problem is that in my heart there's this polluted river, this kind of gushing forth pollution, then, this, then Christ offers us a solution. And, and so listen to what Christ has to say here from John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. He says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those that believed in him were to receive, as yet the Spirit, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So through Christ, these hearts that used to spew forth this polluted, you know, salty water are bringing forth rivers and rivers of fresh uh, living water. And that's, that's, that's the miracle of the gospel, that we, we acknowledge our wickedness and our corruption to God, and, and we ask God to change us, and he does. That because of Christ, people who used to be rebels, who are transgressors, who are wicked and awful, become children of God. Um, that we get new hearts, we get new minds, and we get a new spirit. It's the restoration of who we're supposed to be. It's everything we forfeited in the fall that God, through Christ, is gradually restoring to us. And so God, it's as if God has this bottomless well of grace, and we just keep sinning, and we just keep going back to him, and he keeps restoring us. And he keeps making us more and more into the image of his, of, his, of his firstborn son. And he'll just dip into that bottomless well whenever we come back to him for grace. And so we, we acknowledge the fruit of our sin, the what of sin. We acknowledge the root of our sin, the why of sin, our hearts. And then we ask God, we turn to God for grace, the root of repentance. And then finally we enjoy the delicious fruit of repentance. Um, namely, that repentance is going to spring forth in, in blessings. And I think there's a lot of blessings that, that the Bible talks about, so I, I, this is certainly not an exhaustive list. Um, there's more we, we even saw earlier today in, in Titus 2 and 3. Um, but there's three blessings that are highlighted here in Psalm 51. The first is joy, the second is obedience, and the third is worship. So joy. Uh, look at verse 8. David says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
And then a little later in verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And so from those verses, I would draw a couple of inferences. Number one, David has lost his joy. Where'd your joy go, David? And the second, that God will graciously restore it. In other words, we're made to live in dependence upon God and to live in right relationship with him. And so it's not, it shouldn't be surprising that when we don't do that, we start to feel miserable. And it also shouldn't be surprising that when we do do that and we return to him for his grace, that we start to feel better. Uh, so joy and then obedience. Look at verse 12. Second half of verse 12, David says, Uphold me with a willing spirit, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He's saying uphold or sustain him, that, is, that, that God would, would keep him on the right path. God would give him this, like, a renewed zeal for him, and then this renewed zeal would flow through, not just into obedience, but also that he'd start to tell other people about the goodness of God, and about how we should follow his ways. Hey, this worked out really well for me. I would recommend that you do it too. Uh, And then the third is is worship, and that's in verse 14. David says, deliver me from guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth, will declare your praise. Um, that God's God grace makes us want to sing aloud or declare his praise. It's like someone who's been pardoned. That we were on death row, and rightfully so. And then some, at some point, someone just comes in and lets us out. And we, we makes us want to jump for joy. Like, oh, this is fantastic. Um, we should be filled with gratitude and, and sing for joy from that. And, and so this kind of completes the cycle. That sin says, God is neither good nor does he deserve my respect. And then repentance says, God is not only good, but he is gracious. And he is worthy not just of respect, but of our worship. And so we've gone from fruit to root, and then from root to fruit. And so how do we apply all this? This is very theoretical, uh, and I think there's a lot of potential applications. So I want to highlight just one which is that the hard work of repentance is the heart work of repentance. The hard work of repentance is the heart work of repentance. Meaning, I think our tendency is to skip from fruit to fruit. That uh, we do a bad thing, we feel regret about it, we resolve not to do it again, and we think that makes the problem go away. Um, And there's a word for this, at least in isolation. It's called legalism. And Jesus has an awful lot to say about it. Um, it's an outward change without an inward change. And the real change is going to come from the heart. And so to illustrate this, let's just walk back through that Facebook example and see what, maybe how I should be behaving. And we can use that as an illustration of maybe what it would look like for all of us to repent in our own particular ways. Um, so a few years ago, I just kind of stopped being involved in Facebook entirely, um, at least on the comment section. I'll still post stuff occasionally, you know, really insightful, great stuff. Um, but I'm not really trying to get involved that much in what's going on there. And all of this, that's, that's the legalism of it, right? All the desires are still there. The, 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 the nastiness of me is still there. I'm just not kind of spewing it out onto the internet. Um, but it, it's, I, the river's just being dammed up. It's not being dealt with. And so, so what's the alternative? What would it look like? Well, I think it would start with the, the acknowledging the fruit of it that I would say to God something to the effect of that I've been ungrateful, that, that God has done so much for me. Like when I met, I met God, I was miserable, lonely, drunk. You know, they really had nothing really going for me. Um, and, and yet he's given me this really blessed, wonderful life now. 
only a, really only a few years later. Um, but here I am chasing after Facebook arguments like in 2012. And then I'm rebellious that God has appointed me as an ambassador of his grace. And here I am just like insulting people for no real reason on the internet. And then that I deserve condemnation for that. That, that Jesus says that whomever you say, whoever says you fool is liable to the fires of hell. Now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but that tells us that this is very serious stuff that I'm doing here. Um, and then we move down from the fruit to the root of sin. That there's these twisted desires in me that putting people down to make myself feel good and acknowledging that I value digital approval more than I value God. And then I'm hammering away on the keyboard trying to crowdsource my self-esteem. And these desires are not aberrations. They're not little oopsies. This is who I am. And then we go to God for grace in in the root of repentance. Um, We ask him for his forgiving grace, that he would cleanse me of this iniquity. And we ask him for his restoring grace, that he would reshape my heart to be more in line with who he wants me to be. Um, That I would say, this is who I am. Please change me. And then finally, we, you know, I, would, I would trust in him. I would trust, that, uh, I would trust in his forgiveness that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that I would trust in his restoration. That if, he, if God loved me enough that while I was in his enemy, he sent his own son to die for me, then now that I am his son, how will he not with him also graciously give me all things? And then that would push us out to praise God for his goodness, um, the fruit of repentance. I would worship God and praise him both in my actions, but telling other people about his goodness, about living the life that he wants me to live, uh, but also in my worship, that I'd be thanking him and praising him from this bottomless well of grace, that though we've sinned and we deserve condemnation, that he continues to graciously uh, forgive us through his son. And so sin says, you know, God's not good, and repentance says, God's not just good, God is gracious. And then sin says, God's not worthy of respect. But, but repentance says that God is not just worthy of respect, but he's uh, really worthy of our praise. And so let's, let's praise him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.